0: How many thank God for his word? How many thank God for his word? Well, today I want to invite you to uh, open your Bibles or your apps. Join me in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 4. When we get a chance to see Paul writing to a young church, what we would call a church plant, Uh, they were only a a few years old when this letter is written, maybe two, maybe three years old, so they're they're young in their their faith, their journey growing. Who would have known that this little church would one day go on to be one of the most influential churches that the world has ever known, and that 2,000-plus years later, we would still be reading this letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote. To them, but we're doing so in light of our reflections on the Apostles' Creed. And what we're going to see today is the commitment of uh, the early believers, that generation immediately following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, their commitment to the church. And we're going to take up this question what is the church for? Now, we just came off of a series called Church Why Bother, where we uh, answered the question, What is the church? And we said the church is a spiritual family, but what is the church for is what we're going to discuss today, and we're going to see that explained in detail by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. But first, let's look back at the creed. Maybe you have this card that we gave out at the beginning of the series. You can follow along silently or read aloud. If not, feel free to look at the screen. There will be words there on the screen. But this is a statement of faith. It was the early church saying, we need the world to know what we believe. There's a lot of rumors about what we believe. Some things are true, some things are false, but we want the world to know what we believe. So this this is as if they're saying, these things we believe, and every generation needs to affirm the things that we believe. Now, what I love about what's been classically called the Apostles' Creed is that it is efficient in detailing the essentials of the faith, the essential truths of the Christian faith. How many believe still that truth exists? How many believe that, that truth exists? Probably about 80% of the room. Uh, Some question that, and that's not abnormal. This is a generation that questions whether or not you can even know what's true or is it all personal opinion. Uh, But I would say those of us who believe in God's word are forced to confront that question, does truth exist? How many believe by the show of hands that not only it exists, but how many believe truth is knowable? How many believe that you can know what is truth, right? And how many believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. I mean, you believe that Jesus is truth. Amen. Amen. All right, let's let's read this. I believe in God, the Father almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints. We're going to stop right there. I find it interesting that in a, in a statement of faith in which so much of it is dedicated to what they believe about God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they thought it was also equally as important to include what they believe about the church. And while they don't give this um, complete exposition of it, it's not an exhaustive exposition of what they believe about the church, it is certainly an invitation for us to dig into what the scriptures teach us about the church. But they give us a couple of indications. The first thing is that they say they believe in the universal church. Now, some of you, if you are familiar with the uh, Apostles' Creed, or if you search or Google it, you might see that word universal exchanged for another word, Catholic church. And that word Catholic is used in the classic sense, not to refer to what we would commonly know was the Roman Catholic Church, but to use the word as it was originally intended, the word meaning universal. To, to look at the church, not just through its local expression, but this was their way of recognizing that the church is the community of all who believed throughout every generation and throughout the world, that the spiritual family of God extends beyond this current moment and this local expression. And let me put it in a way that we should all be able to relate to, that the church is bigger than Woodside. How many believe that? Praise God. For Woodside, but the church is bigger than Woodside. The church, as we've defined it again and again and again, is a spiritual family. God being Father, us being brothers and sisters, Christ being Lord, our Redeemer and Savior. And the beautiful thing is, is we get a chance to say, "I am family. We are family with people all around the world." In just about 24 hours, I'm going to be getting on a plane along with some others, and we're going to be going to Ethiopia to meet with some brothers and sisters in Christ that most of us have never met before. But you know what's going to happen? We're going to step off that plane, hopefully be greeted by them, and we're going to embrace one another as family. Now, here's the question I got for you. Do we sing the same songs? Do we speak the same language? Do we eat the same foods? Do we wear the same clothes? No, all of those things are different. Different culture, different geography, different different ethnicities, but the beautiful thing is one Lord. We are all brought together by that one spirit. That's what it means to be a part of the universal church, the mystery of Christ redeeming and pulling together a body across all generations and across all cultures. But then they also say, I believe in the communion of the saints. This is a sense that God does not redeem us alone. That you and I are not long rangers, that we are a part of a body, a body of believers, a family of faith. And that's what I love about Ephesians, is that it speaks to us as a family. Now, we're going to read through this, and you're going to be tempted, as we are in many portions of the body, to read I, where we should be reading we. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, every time the word you shows up, it's the plural use of you, not a hyper-individualistic Western use of the word you. He's speaking to us as a spiritual family, as a community. If we were in Texas, we would read it this way, y'all. This is the y'all book of the Bible, right? And so as we go through, we're going to read some y'alls together, and what we're going to learn is how we ought to treat one another. Recently, I ran across a book. I love this book. It's by Barnabas Piper. Uh, He's writing on what the church is and why the church exists. And I'm gonna get in trouble because I didn't give the bookstore a heads up. So don't go running to the bookstore, expecting them to have it. Please forgive me, Lori and team. They do a marvelous job. But um, Barnabas is uh, a pastor's son and he wrote a book called Belong. I love the subtitle, Loving Your Church by Reflecting Christ to One Another. And he says this, the church is the place where we practice the one another's of scripture and reflect Christ to each other. Now, if you're not familiar with the one another's of scripture throughout the New Testament, there are a lot of one another's in scripture. Love one another, pray for one another, forgive one another, encourage one another. And every time I hear one of those one another's, I think of my mom's voice because I grew up in a one another type family. How many grew up in a one another type family? Love one another, support one another, have each other's back care for one another, protect one another. Anybody grew up in a one another family? A few of you. Um, grew up in that type of family. But but if you grew up in that type of family, you know that it was ingrained into your heart that because we are family, we're supposed to look out for one another. And maybe you didn't grow up in that type of family. That's all right, because you've been brought into uh, another family by the blood of Jesus that loves and should reflect the perfect heart of a loving God. Now, how many have, like my house, when you walk into the house, you have either a a picture or a portrait of the family rules? Anybody ever see these uh, pictures or portraits? My wife has one of those in like every room. It's as if she's worried that I'll forget how to behave, or, or maybe it's for my kids. But you read these family rules. We don't go to bed mad at each other. We kiss, we hug, we love, all of these things. Well, this is what Ephesians 4 is all about. Ephesians 4 is like Paul making one of those family rules pictures and saying, frame it and live this way. What we're going to see is that God's church is where God's people grow into God's image. And how do we do that? By God's grace. We can't do it alone. It's his Grace. So three things he does to help us to grow into his image as a spiritual family. And I want Woodside to be known for these three things. First, God's church is where he unites his body. Let's look at verse number one of Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called uh, into the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is very clear in what he wants. He wants us to recognize that we've received this tremendous gift of salvation, this tremendous gift of grace. How many how many can agree that the greatest gift you've ever been given has been the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ? How many believe that? How many believe that's your greatest asset as well? More valuable than your house, more valuable than your car, more valuable than IRAs or investments? How many believe that your greatest asset is your relationship with Jesus Christ, amen? To be protected, at all costs and not to be compromised. Now, Paul says, in light of this, walk worthy. Live in a way that reflects that you value what God has done. And understand that he did that with the expectation that you would no longer live the way you used to live, but that you would live differently. So the rest of the chapter then is is, is a flow from that command. Walk worthy. So what does it then mean to walk worthy? And the first thing that we're introduced to when we ask that question, what does it mean to walk worthy? Is the are these verses which nine times mentions the word one or unity. You know, sometimes when you're reading the passage, it's hard to know what the main idea is. What's the point of this text? Sometimes we who are teachers have to dig out tools and dig deep to figure out what's the main point. Other times, it's super obvious. When Paul is as repetitive as he is, it is not a sign of senility. It's not a sign of forgetfulness. He didn't forget that he just used the word one before in the previous verse. He keeps using the word one to drive home for emphatic purposes, be united, that one of the ways you walk worthy is to work towards the unity of the faith. Now, here's the thing that makes this hard. While some of us may be agreeable by nature, How many from personal experience and from knowing yourself know that most of us are disagreeable by nature? How many love arguing so much that it doesn't matter which side, you just pick a side and you can argue just as effectively? You don't have to raise your hand, your spouse is here with you, they'll raise their hand on your behalf. Now, to be truthful in a free market economy like we have, capitalistic society, being non-agreeable is actually uh, maybe a competitive advantage, being unwilling to just say yes and go along to get along, being willing to go against the grain. It certainly helps in business, certainly in entrepreneurship, certainly you can get ahead if you're willing to not just be agreeable, but to force the issue to your advantage. But what Paul is saying is the kingdom is different than our free market economic system, that the kingdom calls us to work towards unity. Unity with people who are from different cultures. Unity with people who are from different backgrounds. Unity with people who you may may not share a lot in common with except for Christ. I don't know about you. If we were honest, we have to admit unity is hard. You can get married, and on the day you're standing in front of the, the pastor, say, man, this is the most beautiful person I've ever known, and then a week or a month into it say, what in the world is going on? You have these children, and I mean, they're cute, but I will tell you, and I'm telling you from experience, cuteness has an expiration date. It really does. It really does. There's some cute things, but then they grow up, and you start thinking, what happened to the cuteness, right? You love them still, but the reality is, is that unity is hard. How many even find it hard to get along with yourself? So it's not natural for us to get along and to be unified. So this is why we need a power beyond ourselves. Now, he gives us a little bit of an indication by saying, as he starts verse 1, I therefore. And you've been taught, I've been taught when you see the word therefore, go back. Go back and see what precedes it because it's a connector to a previous thought and what it precedes, what is preceded by and what it's connected to is in verse number 20 of the previous chapter. Go back to chapter three, verse number 20. Here's what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we Uh, ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And the church says... Amen. Here's what Paul is saying. He is saying that there is a power that is greater than ours, supplied by God. He is the one who is able to do far above all that we can ask. Or think. And he he says that first. So it's like before he even charges us to be unified, he tells us there's a power that's available to us to be able to walk out this unity. And then he charges us. And I love that. I love that. Because one of the things that I hate is when somebody tells me to do something that I know I should do, but I don't have the power to do it. Somebody telling you that you should go and just You know, uh, do something and you're thinking to yourself like, okay, thank you, Mr. Obvious. I know that, (laughs) right? But I need a power beyond myself to be able to do it. What Paul says is that, hey, I'm about to charge you with some things. But before I do, let me tell you now to him who's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you can ask or think to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Don't forget your power source. It comes from God. Why is this so important? Because it was Jesus who on the cross while being crucified and humiliated by his very creation had the ability, as the song says, to look beyond our faults and to see our need. It was him who had the divine power on the cross to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was so committed to our redemption that even while we were crucifying and humiliating him, he had the supernatural power to forgive us. I need that if my marriage is going to work. I need that if I'm gonna love my children, even in rebellious seasons. I need that if I'm gonna love you. I need that if we're gonna be the church. We need that power. But here's the question that we have, is do you want that power? Because it's available according to scripture. So the power to be united is available to us. The real question is, do we want it? I remember hearing this illustration long ago. I don't know where I heard it from originally, but I've told it to my kids, to uh, our staff before, and I'll share it with you. Every single one of us has two invisible buckets in either hand. One is a bucket of water, and the other is a bucket of gasoline. Now, when you encounter a dispute or contention or an argument, which bucket do you use When you encounter a spouse who's irritable, which bucket do you use? Do you throw gasoline on it? Some of you like a bonfire. It's like, let it burn, get the popcorn. I wanna see this thing play out, right? You watch arguments for entertainment purposes, right? But what Paul is calling us to is to use that bucket of water that when there is tension between two brothers in Christ in the church, our thoughts should be, what can we do to reconcile those two brothers? When there's tension between two sisters in Christ, our thoughts should be, how can we be used not to pick sides, stay on God's side, how can we unify them? When there is tension between a husband and a wife in the local church, all of us collectively as the body Because, again, this is a y'all command. All of us collectively as the body uh, should be working to unify that husband and wife. Disunity ought to be our enemy. Unity is our goal, and we can only achieve it through Christ, but he makes it available. Use the bucket of water, not the bucket of gasoline, before you respond, before you act. Here's what uh, Barnabas Piper says in the book, again, Belong. He says, in a physical body, if there is disunity, animosity, or infighting, we call that illness, like a cancer or an autoimmune disease. If a church is marked by disunity, animosity, or infighting, it can be just as cancerous. So when we see disunity in the body and we choose to pick sides, we're letting that cancer grow. When we see a marriage disunified and we choose to do nothing, we're letting that cancer grow. But when we're working towards unity, not in our power, but by the power of the Spirit among our kids, among uh, our marriages, among friends, among brothers and sisters who are attention with one another, the constant work of unity It is helping the church to walk worthy, and I wanna say thank you to the peacemakers in here. I wanna say thank you to those of you who have the the call of God in a very unique fashion to help folks to work towards unity, counselors and others. You are so important to the body because the. The, 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 the natural default position for humanity is division and contention and disunity. You help us to walk worthy. One of the ways that we walk worthy is through unity. Amen? All right, let's move on from there. Paul goes on to say the second thing that God does in the church is he builds up his body. Let's pick up this text in verse number seven. But grace thank God for his grace, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. I got to read this whole text, but I'm telling you, if I was at home right now, this would be where I put my Bible down and have a 30-second praise break. Thank God for the grace that he has given us in Christ. Anybody besides me grateful for the grace that God has given to us in Christ Jesus? You don't have to be robotic and just read verses like that and just keep going and just take notes. It's all right for you to say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. I need that grace more than I need coffee in the morning morning going on verse number eight therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and saying he ascended what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions uh uh, uh, the lower regions of earth goes on to say he who descended is the one who also ascended Uh, Far above all the heavens, that he might feel all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is where I wish I had three more hours because this merits it, but you'll have to go home and study it yourself. And all I'm able to do right now is just pick out just a few very, very important salient points. And the main point of this one, if if oneness was the point of the previous thing we just read, He is the repetitive word in this particular section. He ascended. He descended. He gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. It is all about him. The church is all about him. Our worship, our praise, our living is all about him. If we're going to walk worthy, we have to walk worthy in a way that centers our lives, not on me, but on him. The centerpiece of our lives, the constant work of the church is to reorient. Because when you are born, you're the center of the world. Everything revolves around you. And the rest of life is us figuring out that was a lie. That we are not the center of the world, but that he is. Amen? Or you can just say, ouch. Now, who is the he that's referred to here? Verse number 13, Son of God. The Son of God. Jesus is the he. And what is he on mission to do? Verse 12, building up his body. Why? Because he wants us to grow up into full maturity, full full uh, manhood as he uses here. And the way that he builds up his body is through his body. That each one of us has been given a gift. More than what you've received through your academic training, more than a natural talent, there are supernatural endowments given to us that are called spiritual gifts in the Bible. And it's, in, it's vital that you know your spiritual gift because your spiritual gift is how you serve the body. And every time you serve the body, you are building up the body. Every time you use your gifts in service and ministry to the body, you're building up the body. So here's the question, do you know your gifts? Now, it's gonna be tempting for some to say, I don't have a gift, well, all of us do. Maybe it's a gift to teach, maybe it's a gift to serve, maybe it's a gift of generosity. Whatever the gift is, you need to know your gift. Now, through our Next Steps class, we got a great class, Next Steps, it's four weeks, and a big part of it is to help you to find your place in the body of Christ. And if you're trying to figure out what is my ministry, what is my calling? Right before this service, I sat down with a, with a brother who is such a, such a, so full of the joy of the Lord and you can clearly see God at work in his life. And our whole conversation was about what is God's place for you in the body? And a lot of us are still working through that. This is what the church is for. Notice he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints to help you to find your place in the body and to discover your gifts so that you can then minister to one another and as an outflow of that, we grow stronger as a church and we're able to reach the world. So how do you find your place in the body? I would encourage you to find out more about that Next Steps class in in the lobby. Also take a spiritual gift assessment test. There's a lot of those that are online, and what they do is they help you to figure out what's my spiritual gift and where do I best fit. There are two great days in a person's life. The day they were born is the first, and the second is the day that they discover what they were born to do. You need to discover where you fit in the body of Christ and then go about the business of serving because as you do, you're helping the body to build up. And maybe it's kids that he's called you to serve, helping them to build up. Or maybe it's men, or maybe it's women, or maybe it's the global church through missions, or maybe it's teaching, whatever it is. Maybe you've been given a prayer ministry. Man, is that vital for the church growing up. Or maybe you've been called to be a counselor to the needs of the saints. Whatever it is that you've been called to do, know this, he did not just give you your gifts so that you can turn those into economic profit for the world or for your own personal Personal gain or to buy more toys. He didn't give me gifts solely for that purpose. Certainly, I have to provide for my family, but He's given me these gifts primarily in service to you so that I can build you up. And we're not done until everybody's built. Notice what He's trying to build up. Notice He's not just trying to build us individually, He's trying to build up the body. He's trying to build up the body. Again, this is another y'all verse. He wants to build y'all. He wants to build us together. And we all play a part. And it's easy for us to think, well, everybody else has it. I don't have to do anything. And if I take a, a, a day off, a month off, a year off, a decade off, then, then, then uh, nothing will be missed. But that's not true. We miss you when you're not contributing to the body. You bring something unique to the party. This is like a big potluck, and we all bring our dishes to the party, but if you don't show up, we're missing something. The body needs you, amen? Just repeat after me, say, the body body needs me. Say it again, the body body needs me. I will tell you to say that to your neighbor, but you may never come back again, so. So I won't do that to you. You know, um, how many celebrate baptisms? How many thank God for baptisms, right? there's, There's probably nothing that excites me more than hearing stories of transformation, life change. Do you know on Easter we had 27 baptisms here? How many praise God for that? You know, there was an additional 20 baptisms across our campuses uh, throughout this region. So on Easter, we have 47 baptisms at Woodside. How many praise God for that, right? I bring that up to say, as tempting as it is to see each one of them as some individual story, there's a network of people behind each one of those stories who built that person up, who poured into that person. Some planted, others watered. God brought the increase. It is us working together, doing our part that helps to bring a person to faith in Christ and ultimately to fruitfulness. So thank you for doing your part. And if you're if you're not in the game yet, understand that Christianity is not a spectator sport. It is uh, not us to come into a room and sit as fans in an auditorium to root on the star players. That's not how Christianity is designed. Each one of us has been given the gift and there are no small parts. We all do something significant for the advancement of the building up of the body. All right, final thing. God's church is where he uh, grows his body. Look at verse number 14, it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body has been built to build itself up, to bring healing and restoration through the grace of God to one another. Now again, this is such an awesome passage, and the feature here is growing up. He doesn't want us to remain children or... Or infants. And what does growing up mean? It means here that we're not uh, tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine anymore. That we are so uh, trained in the doctrine of God's grace in the gospel that when some new teaching comes along, we're not chasing that like a bunny rabbit that we're not chasing the next popular teaching, the next popular uh, uh, teacher, that we're not going after all the pop psychology stuff, that we are so rooted and grounded in God's word that we are anchored so that when the winds of culture blow and when they shift, we're not moved because we are anchored in Christ as Lord, as King of all in all, amen? We then grow up and we help the body to be able to grow up. And how many love growing up? You're not meant to remain an infant. Now, this becomes very illustrious for me in my own home. I got kids ranging from 3 to 16. And there are certain things that are very cute for a 3-year-old that are not cute for a 16-year-old. My 3-year-old is fully and successfully potty trained now. Yesterday, she came out of the bathroom and said, Daddy, I went to potty. And I was excited with her and gave her a high five because you know what that means? I don't have to buy pull-ups anymore. Praise be unto God. Amen? I don't know what I'm going to do with that money, but praise God. It was a big success. But can you imagine my 16-year-old coming out of the bathroom? Daddy, I went to potty. I'm not going to high five that. There are things that are okay when you are new in Christ. Maybe you don't know all the songs. That's all right. Maybe you're stumbling over the words. Maybe you are having a hard time finding your place. Maybe you don't know Genesis from Revelation. That's all right. But you shouldn't be 10 years into your faith and not know the word or not know how to share Christ with someone else or never served on a local or global missions trip or never sacrificed to love someone else. Laying down your life as Christ, still at the same level of forgiveness that you were when you were a babe, not growing in your ability to forgive difficult people. All of those things are matters of maturity. And what Paul says is let's be committed to growing up. So what does maturity look like? Piper says this, and I love it. He says, it looks like following Jesus' footsteps with the help of the Holy Spirit and happily laying down our lives for one another. That's what maturity looks like. That's what Christ is calling us to. That's what I invite you to today. And when we are this way, the world will see that our reconciling God, who's able to reconcile us to one another, is able to reconcile them to one another. I wanna invite you to stand as we close. The worship team is gonna come and close us in a song. And as they come, I wanna invite you to put your faith and trust in Christ if you've never done so, and if you have, I want you to exercise that faith as you love your neighbors. Christ has loved you.